0: If you have a Bible, you can be opening, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, who can tell me what next Sunday is? Mother's Day, a favorite day here First Baptist. And I want you to go out and invite people to come with you next week. We'll have hundreds and hundreds of carnations, and every child will be able to present one to their mom, to their grandmother. And uh, we'll, as a church, present one to any moms who don't have any children here with them next Sunday. So go out and invite people to come. We have a fun, fun time. I'm also next week going to start a new series of messages titled Another Mess, Another Fine Mess. It's going to be a study, a brief study of the book of Jeremiah. And that's an important topic because the truth is all of us find ourselves in messes from time to time. And a lot of lessons to learn from Scripture about, well, how sometimes we get ourselves into them how to avoid doing that, but also what to do once we get in a mess and how to respond and just what does God want to teach us. So if you've ever been in a mess or think you'll ever be in a mess, then you need to be here next Sunday in the weeks to come, okay? So that that starts then. But today, I want to preach a message that I'm titling, A Cheerful Giver, A Cheerful Giver. We spent last month in a message series called Grace Changes Everything, looking at how God's grace or God's love is so real that he demonstrated it by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. His love was something that he acted on. That's what love always does. It it does stuff. It doesn't just feel. It doesn't just talk. It acts. And when you and I respond to that love of God, it changes us. It changes our relationship with God, our spiritual reality. But it also changes our heart. And we learned that our heart becomes more like God's heart, and that impacts how we view the world and the people in it and how we feel about them, and we care about people, and we care about lost people, people don't have a relationship with Christ. And then last Sunday, when, when my heart is like God's heart and His love fills me and it changes my heart, it means it also changes how I feel about my stuff and that we as believers give. We're generous. We give because God has our heart cause of love because we've been changed by that well today I want to go the next step and then next Sunday we'll start the new series of another fine mess but today I want to take it to the next step and look at the attitude that you and I have when we give because God has our heart when it when, when we're when his love fills us and we give how that feels to us so to speak now my wife Manisa is sitting down here and yesterday at different times we both did some shopping And uh, when I came home, everything I had was for me. I'm buying new clothes where I've lost all this weight. So I spent a few hours yesterday looking for some new stuff. And everything I brought to the house, I have to confess, was for me. When Monisa came in, she was in the bedroom, and she was excitedly taking these things out of the bag. And all of it was for Liam, our grandson who will be here in early June and spend the next six months with us. And she was showing me this and showing me that and how cute this is and how cute that is. And the reason she was so excited was Liam has what? Her heart. And when God has your heart, it changes how you feel about your stuff and it affects how you feel about giving. And the truth is when you love, you enjoy doing for someone else. You enjoy showing love. You enjoy giving. You enjoy blessing. You enjoy using all of your resources to help them, right? I mean, that's what love does. And the same thing is true with us and God. When, when we as believers, when he has our heart and, 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 and our hearts are filled with his love, we give out of love, but we enjoy it. So look at what he says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, one verse to start with, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, he says this, For one must do just as he purposed in his heart Not grudgingly or under compulsion or of necessity, your Bible may translate it. For God loves what? What kind of giver does God love? Again, what kind of giver does God love? Say cheerful loudly. God loves a cheerful giver. That word in the original language of the New Testament literally is the one we get our English word hilarious from. Think about that. God loves a cheerful giver. And you've got a, a sheet in your insert today, an insert today in your program to take some notes on. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is just what that verse says, that God really does enjoy and love cheerful givers, hilarious givers, laughter. I mean, you, you, it, you just overflow with it. It just rolls out, okay? The kids sometimes make fun of me when I laugh because of something's really funny. I if something's funny, man, I, I, I can laugh. I can fill a room. I can fill a house with laughter. I've even rolled off the couch and landed in the floor. I've gotten so tickled before. I mean, I get into it. I love humor. And that's kind of what this word is talking about. It's just hilarious. You love it. You get into it. It's, it's not something that's drab and dreary. I mean, you really enjoy it. You're in hilarious gift. In this verse... He mentions that there are three types of givers, three kinds of people in the church who give. He says those who give grudgingly. And your Bible may say reluctantly or out of regret. Literally, that, that word means not out of grief or sorrow or sadness. It's the, here's the picture. You do it, and after you do it, you regret that you did it. You grieve because you miss what you gave. And, and you start thinking to yourself, man, look at all the things I could have done with that if I hadn't given it. And so afterwards, you're filled with grief and sorrow and sadness, and you end up begrudging the giving. Um, my brother-in-law, who's now deceased, was a, an accountant. And, and I remember years ago when he would do the annual tax return for another brother-in-law, he would occasionally ask, because that other brother-in-law was, you know, went to church and tithed and was generous, and he'd, he'd, he'd ask the question, why do you give so much? Can't you just look at all you could do with that money if you didn't give it to the church? Well, that's the attitude behind this work, grudgingly, you grieve over the fact that you give. And God says, I don't want you to be that kind of giver. A second kind of giver in verse 7 is the one who does it under compulsion, or your Bible may say of necessity. That's the person who's under pressure. You feel forced into it, and it's the exact opposite of 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 a response that, that is a willing heart that gladly and willingly does it. And God says, I don't want you to be that kind of giver. I want you to be a cheerful giver, a happy giver, one that's responding to the love of God and all the blessings of God in your life, and it's just what you naturally want to do. You're going to be a generous person, and you're excited about doing that. So the first thing is God loves cheerful givers. The second thing is that cheerful givers, now listen to this, cheerful givers are zealous about giving. They're passionate about it. They're enthusiastic about it. We're going to look at the first couple of verses in chapter 9, and I want you to remember he's writing this to the believers who live in the city of Corinth, okay, the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city in that time called Achaia. Today we know that as Greece. So these are Greek believers, and he's writing this letter to them, and in chapter 9, he begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying, For it would be superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, the collection, the offering he was collecting for the work of God. And when he says superfluous or not necessary, he says it's almost like he's saying there's no need for me to say anything else to you about this. It would be excessive. It would be overkill for me to say anything more about this offering to you. Why? Well, he mentions the reason in verse 2. For I know your readiness of which, of which I boast about to the Macedonians. He said, I know that you're already ready to make the offering. In fact, he goes on to say, you've been ready for a year. You've been collecting your offerings for a year to contribute to this offering that he was taking up for the ministry of God in Jerusalem. And, and he said, I've been bragging on you to the Macedonians. The Macedonians were believers in the city of Thessalonica in your New Testament, the book of First and Second Thessalonians, just north of Greece. There's, you know, Macedonians still exist today. And, uh, and so he said, I'm up here north of you in Macedonia and I've been bragging to these believers about your generosity toward this offering. And he said, I don't really need to say anything more to you because it's just useless. You're already ready. I've been bragging on you. You're, you're so ready. And then he goes on to say that you've been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. In other words, I, I've been up here bragging on you. You believers down there in Greece, in Corinth, I've been bragging on you, and your example is so incredible that you've inspired these believers up here in Thessalonica, the Macedonian believers. You've inspired them to be generous and give also. And he goes on to, to explain uh, more about it um, in, this, in this chapter and also in chapter 8. But he said, you stirred them up. Now, most of them, not all of them, there are always going to be some people in church who are never generous. There will, There will always be some people in church who who are not generous, who aren't inspired by others, who who just don't want to be part of what God's doing. They're just not going to give. They're going to be stingy. They're going to be selfish with their money. But most of these Macedonian believers became very generous and said, we want to participate in what God is doing, and we want to participate by giving. So notice what he says to these Macedonians up here in chapter 8. Go, go back to the start of chapter 8, verse 1, for a moment. So Paul's writing this letter to the Greek believers. And in chapter 8, He tells them about these believers up here in Macedonia that they've inspired. He said, Brethren, I wish... Look look at verse 1 of chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. He said, Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Let me tell you about what God's been doing up here. That in a great ordeal of affliction, they were having a tough time. Their abundance of joy, their joy, their happiness was not dependent on their circumstances. Listen, some of us never learn that we can have peace and joy even in the midst of hard times because too many of us make how we feel completely dependent on what's happening. And that's a tough way to live. If if that's how you live, your life is going to be like a yo-yo, up one day and down the next. You're going to be happy one day and miserable the next. That's no way for a believer to live. He said, my joy. He said, they've got joy in the midst of their affliction, their hard times, and their deep poverty. They weren't rich believers, and yet it overflowed. Their joy overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It overflowed in their generosity, their liberal giving. Verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they did more than they were even able to. They went the extra mile, if you will. They gave on their own accord. Verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation, the support of the saints. Can you imagine what would happen in this church if everybody in this room stood up and begged me for the opportunity for you to give more? That's what's going on here. They were begging Paul, these Macedonian believers, begging him for the opportunity to give more. They wanted to be able to give even though they were poor and even though they were going through difficult times. They said, we want to be part of it. We want to do our part. And the thing that had inspired them apart from their relationship with God was the example of the Greek believers down in the city of Corinth that he's writing this letter to and talks about in chapter 9. You see, what one person does can inspire another. And it's equally true that what one person does can demotivate another. And by the way, Find those people to hang out with who inspire you in the right way. Because if you don't, Satan's going to bring plenty of people into your life who will inspire you in the wrong way. Seek out people who will motivate you, inspire you, encourage you in the right way toward those good things that make life better. Find those kind of examples. You need them. We all need them. And hang out with them. But these were generous believers, even though it was hard and they were poor. But notice, and I I love the way he says in verse 2 that in the midst of their poverty and their affliction, this deep joy they had overflowed in the form of generous Giving. Now I want to help you understand what that looks like by using one of my favorite drinks, Diet Cheerwine. Anybody in the room like cheer wine? Can I get a witness? I love Diet Cheerwine. Eat your heart out. Oh man, that's good. That is so good. Love that stuff. Now, I want you to imagine that this cheer wine is a picture of all the blessings that God's pouring into your life. All the good things that God is pouring into you your time, your years, your kids, your family, your skill set, your learnings. Your house, your car, your job, your career, your money. And God just keeps pouring all these blessings into you. And that's still good. And all the blessings of God are just that. They're a blessing. They taste good. And they quench your thirst. And they put moisture on a sore throat where I'm preaching this morning several times. Those blessings of God are so good. And you see, you have a choice to make. You can, you can be the kind of believer, and you, and you keep saying, God, fill my, cup. Fill, my cup. fill my cup, 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 fill my cup. And you keep all those blessings of God, including your money, in your cup for you to enjoy eat your heart out they're not yours it's mine or you can be the kind of believer that takes the blessings of God and you share some of them. You can be a generous believer, a caring believer, who passes on the blessings of God so that others can be blessed. You can become, if you will, a funnel. Rather than a cup that holds it all and keeps it all for yourself, you can become a funnel. And it can overflow into the lives of others. It can overflow into the kingdom of God. It can overflow into all the things that God's doing in this world to make a difference, to change people's lives, to help people, to bless people. So so you can be a funnel. You can be generous and you can share. Or you can be selfish and keep it all to yourself. Now let me ask you, if the love of God fills your life and heart, and you've been changed by the grace of God, okay, which do you think you're going to resemble? A funnel Or a cup that keeps it all for yourself? Man, it's still good. These Macedonian believers, these believers up north in Thessalonica, in the midst of their poverty and their affliction, their hard times, they were funnels. They were funnels. They didn't keep everything to themselves. He said they went beyond what they were able to do. They were a funnel-type believer. And you have to make the choice in life which kind you're going to be. A cheerful believer, a happy one, is this. You see, the one who tries to live like this is always worried about how much they have and don't have. Is always worried about how their stuff compares to somebody else's stuff. Gets their sense of identity and well-being and happiness out of stuff and comparisons and this and that. And the thing is, it's just like that new car. The smell eventually goes away and you got to have something else. But those who are cheerful givers and, and generous... Their joy comes from a different place. Now, do I still like cheer one? Do I like the blessings of God? You better believe it. But it's because the Lord is in here that joy is not dependent on circumstances. And that impacts how we feel about giving, what we do with our stuff. All right, here's another lesson. Cheerful givers live their lives by this principle. They live by the principle that generosity is better than stinginess. The principle that generosity is better than stinginess. In chapter 9, verse 5, at the end of it, he he talks about them being ready with a bountiful gift that would not be affected by covetousness. And then look at verse 6. He said, this I say, he he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He uses a farming analogy. In other words, the more tomato plants I plant, the more ripe tomatoes I'll have in July and August. The more corn I plant, the larger my crop. The more potatoes I plant, the more potatoes I'll harvest. That's just a principle of life. And and some of us haven't figured that out. It's also true in the spiritual world. Now, I'm not talking about like these... You know, TV preachers, the prosperity gospel guys who say if you send an offering in, God's going to make you rich and give you a Cadillac, whatever you want to drive. But I am saying that when you are generous and when you share in the kingdom of God, God has blessings for you that, that are incredible. God God will bless your life, sometimes financially and sometimes in other ways. But there are blessings. And people who are cheerful givers live their life by the principle that stinginess is not the way to live. Generosity is the way to live. Alan is a successful businessman in, in Tennessee. Very successful, a lot of money. He's a believer. He's always been very generous, strong giver. He's always tried to make decisions about his business and his investment and his retirement income and his lifestyle out of Christian principles. And and therefore, he lives below what he could afford to live at because he believes in giving. And recently, he said that after prayer, a lot of prayer, and talking to some mature believers, he made the decision to start another business. Not because he needed more money, but because he wanted to make more money to give more. And all the money made in that new business, because he already has plenty to live on through his current operations, and he's generous with that, but all the money from this new business is to be given to the kingdom of God, to the work of God. That's what he's talking about here with a cheerful giver. That's the attitude that a cheerful giver brings to his lifestyle, to his approach to stuff, that generosity is better than stinginess. There's another lesson in in these verses for us, and it's this, that you can become a cheerful giver. Because some of you right now, giving hurts. You're one that you grieve at the thought of giving. Maybe you're in debt and, and you've created some issues for yourself. But the Bible says you can become a cheerful giver. And here's how. You can become a cheerful giver by staying so close to Jesus Christ, you begin to mimic Him. You begin to mimic Him. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, talking about these Macedonian Christians up to the north who had been inspired by the Greek believers. He said in verse 5, and this, none, none as we had expected. In other words, their giving exceeded our expectations, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see, when you first given yourself to the Lord, giving yourself and your stuff to the work of God is an easy choice. Because when you give yourself to the Lord, inherent you know, inherent in that is you give everything that is a part of who you are, including your money. Because everything that defines who you are as a human being, everything that defines who you are as a believer, when you give yourself to the Lord, you give it all. You give your time, you give your future, you give your career, you give your family, you give your job, you give all your resources. That's the reason that banner... And the back says resource investment. All the resources in our lives are gifts from God and we as believers invest the totality of our being, the totality of all that we are for the purpose of Christ. And so once we give ourselves to the Lord, the rest of it, it just happens. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You ever noticed how little kids love <clears throat> mimicking their parents or grandparents? Little boy try to walk in the steps of dad. Little boy, little you know, loves to hang out with granddad. Little girl loves to hang out with grandma. Whatever. You, you ever see? They just we just. You ever notice that, huh? And then they grow up and stop doing that. And we become believers. We're we're new Christians. And we mimic God. We mimic our Father. We want to be just like Him. He's rubbing off on us. And then we, quote, unquote, grow up and become active church members and stop doing that. See, as believers, we're to mimic our Father until the day we meet Him in heaven. You and I are never to stop mimicking God, never to stop mimicking Christ. We are to constantly becoming more like Him, imitators of God like little children. And the book of Romans chapter 8, it talks about our salvation and that we've been saved and to to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become increasingly more like Jesus. It's another way of saying what I was talking about last month, that, that when you respond to the love of God, His love fills your heart and changes you. And when His love fills your heart and changes you, you look more like Him. You act more like Him. You make decisions more like Him. He continues, and, and we're to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice. How do we know that God loves us? Well, we saw it last month. God, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? He died for us. He acted. He did something. We imitate Him. We imitate Him. Let me help you understand that. I'm going to borrow somebody's wallet. Brother Keith, you trust me. You like me. Sort of. Well, come on up here. I want, I want your wallet. Come over here and give me your wallet, brother. Give it back, right? <laughs> well, we'll see. He asked me if I'm going to give it back. We'll find out. Let's see what you got in here. He's actually got some cash. Here you go. I'm going to take this. Yeah. There you go. You want this back? Thank you. Thank you for the cash, by the way. $10. Baby, we're going to lunch. That'll buy my lunch today. Come here. Yeah, you. Come here. come here. Come here. You want a dollar? There you go. Wait, wait, wait. You want another one? Why don't you find something here and give it to them. doesn't matter who. Anybody you want to. Give that other daughter to somebody. Anybody you want to. Be generous. Will that buy a soft drink anymore? it will buy something. You got a dollar. Well, I like this. Go to lunch. You know something? It is a whole lot easier to give away what's not mine in the first place. And if there's grief in your heart over giving, there's pain in your heart over giving and being generous, it's because you think it's all yours. And you haven't fully given yourself to the Lord. Because when I give myself to the Lord, this right here comes out. When I give myself to the Lord, He gets that too. And he gets my kids. And he gets my car. And he gets my house. And he gets my future. He gets my years and my days. He gets it all. That's what giving myself to the Lord means. And when I do that, That's not too hard. But if it's mine and it's all about fill my cup, fill my cup, fill my cup, fill my cup so I can... Man, that's still good. But if this is how I approach life, giving, being generous, is painful. We grieve. But you know something? When I share... What I have left, man, that still tastes good. Being generous does not rob you of the joy of enjoying the blessings of God. Be a funnel. And you'll experience some cheerfulness. Just being a cup that holds it all for yourself? Not so much. Not so much. So stay close to the Lord. This is Monisa's offering envelope. And in here's a check for the tithe on our latest salary. 10% to this church. There's also a contribution of $500 to our building fund. And we do that regularly. Because the tithe is God's, and I don't, my hand's off. But the offerings are what is done beyond. We've done this since the day we were married. I was doing this before we ever got married. Because if you begin your life knowing that you belong to the Lord, that's just part of who you are. And just like the Greeks' example inspired the Macedonians, I've been inspired in my life by other believers. And you're going to be motivated by some example in there in life. Choose good examples to emulate. And the greatest example of all to emulate is our God, to imitate God, our Father, to imitate Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. That's how you become a cheerful giver. In your bulletin is an insert about our building fund. We're not doing a capital campaign, but I am asking people to... uh, Make a commitment for one year to help us continue paying for our campus, which is beyond our tithe, and take that home, pray over it, talk about it as a family, and on the first Sunday in June or Sunday after that or Sunday before that, bring it and just make a commitment to help us with the building fund for the next 12 months. Do as God leads you and do it cheerfully. Let me wrap this up with a couple of points. He teaches in this passage that God will provide the necessities of life for those who are cheerful givers. He will provide the necessities in life for those who are cheerful givers. Back in chapter 9 again in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Everything that is an expression, an outflow of God's grace, His love, all the blessings of God in your life, including material things and the necessities of life, He's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you will. You know, the TV preachers say if you give, God will make you rich. Don't listen to that that nonsense. But when you are a cheerful giver and you trust God, God will see to it you have the basics that you need. He'll take care of you. But there's also a last point. Not only does he provide the, 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 the necessities for all of us who are cheerful givers, for some, God gives the ability to give a whole lot more. There, there are some that, that, that God blesses in an abundant way, and they're able to give more both in terms of real dollars and also in, in terms of the percentage of their income. You see, 10% is not the stopping point. It's the starting point. And there are some of us in this room who have been blessed immeasurably and we can give significantly more than that. And many do and others should. And that's what he talks about at the end of verse 8 when he says, you may have an abundance, an abundance for every good deed. Bluebird Bus Company is one of the largest builders of buses in America. That company was founded several years ago by a man named Lawrence, and I'm not certain how to pronounce his last name, whether it's Lucy or Luce. But he's he's been a believer his entire adult life, been dedicated and very very generous. When he was raising his family, he would often allow guest evangelists who were speaking at his home church to to stay in his house and He would feed them and provide for them. He was very generous. And his kids can remember some of those evangelists and some of the conversations and prayers and stuff. His oldest son, who now runs the company, remembers one visiting evangelist in particular. He was just a little boy when when the guy was there, but he remembers the prayer this evangelist prayed because he said, I'd never heard anything like it before. And and to this day, he still remembers that prayer. Here's what the evangelist prayed for his dad. He prayed, Lord, if you can trust Mr. Luce with financial success, I ask you to bless him with a prosperous business. If you can't, then I ask you to withhold that blessing. This little boy is now president of that company, he said, I've never forgotten that prayer. And he he talks about how it shaped his dad's life, and in the years to come, when his dad was faced with important business decisions, he would remember that prayer and make a decision about being a trustworthy believer. See, listen, I've said this before, but let me say it again. Some of the greatest tragedies in life are not the things that happen and the things we know about. Some of the greatest tragedies in life are things that never happened that God wanted to do. Blessings God wanted to give that He never gave. And we don't know anything about it. If you live long enough, there are going to be tragedies in your life you don't know occurred because God was ready to do something and He never did it because you weren't trustworthy. It's those unknown things that we miss out on that I think when we get to heaven and learn about are going to be one of the biggest heartbreaks. And so the big question for all of us is, are we trustworthy? Are we trustworthy? And in, in, in the Gospels... When Jesus is teaching, telling parables and and he makes the statement that the one who is faithful in the least will be faithful in the much and the one who is unfaithful in the least will be unfaithful in the much. In the context, in that parable, he's talking about material things as the least. And that if you can be faithful in the least, the material things, then God can trust you with these other blessings. But if you cannot be faithful in the least in the material things, there are other things God wants to do in your life, but He can't trust you with them because He considers the material things the least important thing you are ever asked to be faithful about. Now listen. The reason this matters is it goes to the very heart of his lordship. It goes to the very heart of idolatry. The Bible says that God created everything. And all the stuff we have in life, all the stuff that makes up who we are, our existence, is part of God's creation. And the thing that is always competing for God's place on the throne of my heart and my life is my attachment to and affinity for some of the stuff out here that God created. And idolatry is worshiping what God created in place of the God who created it. Idolatry is loving some of what God created more than than we love the God who created it. Idolatry is trusting in the stuff God created more than we trust God who created the stuff. And that's why we've said for years the most sensitive nerve in the human body is the one attached to this. Because either I give myself to the Lord and lay all of that on the altar with me. Or I go part way and saying, God, nope, this is mine. And you're not quite God in my life yet. The Old Testament, they worshiped idols, carved trees. We worship stuff made out of trees and all the things that the stuff made out of trees makes available. It's just another form of an idol taking the place of our God. See, a cheerful giver realizes this and says, God... You fill my heart, and my heart, and my life belong to you. And Lord, my life is about a whole lot more than all the stuff this makes possible, no matter what our world thinks or says. Does this stuff matter? Yeah, it matters.